on this episode, Dan Crenshaw. Nobody was trying to, 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 to come up with this disingenuous notion that they were going to be more conservative than the guy next to him. Because everybody knows that's BS. The question is, is are you a better warrior for conservatism than the guy next to you? I'm David M. Drucker with the Washington Examiner, and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024, a ricochet podcast and a companion to my book, just out from 12 books, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. Dan is just one of 435 in the House of Representatives, but you may have heard of him in particular because he can be rather blunt and candid, including about his fellow Republicans when he thinks they're wrong or simply acting ridiculous. So especially in the middle of Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine and the West seeming to finally figure out what a thug Vladimir Putin really is, I was excited after an extended late winter hiatus to have Crenshaw on In Trump's Shadow to discuss U.S. foreign policy, Republican foreign policy, and his unique perspective on these and many other issues as a retired Navy SEAL. And the congressman didn't disappoint either. But first, a quick disclosure. My wife's consulting firm raises money for Crenshaw and advises him on fundraising strategy. Okay, with that out of the way, Dan Crenshaw. Congressman Crenshaw, thanks so much for joining us on In Trump Shadow. Yeah, great to be with you, David. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. Listen, there's a lot going on in the world, uh, particularly areas of expertise that you have uh, from the standpoint of foreign policy and national security. Uh, but I just wanted to focus on you for a moment, uh, just because I followed your career and I'm kind of fascinated by it. Remind the audience when you served, where you served, what you did, and why you decided to run for Congress, which for my money is is a necessary job, one of the worst jobs in America. Yeah, yeah I can relate to that. Um, well, again, thanks for having me. Um, so I served in the SEAL teams for 10 years, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, specifically I did uh, uh, three deployments, two to Iraq, uh, third to Afghanistan. I was hurt bad, uh, hit by an IED, lost my eye, blinded in my other one for quite a while. And um, eventually kind of regained sight and did a couple more deployments, uh, mostly in an intelligence related role. Uh, Special operations does a a whole other set of missions that people don't really understand or know about. Um, And uh, and I deployed to Bahrain, I worked in Lebanon, um, and then uh, again in Korea in 2016, had to eventually medically retire. I'm not a total expert on on what's going on right now in Ukraine and Europe. Then again, it seems these days that anybody with more than a few thousand followers on Twitter thinks they're an expert. So it's uh, it's it's really quite quite the thing to see on the internet. Um, and uh, you know, I got out. Uh, I was medically retired, really against my will. I did not really want to leave the Navy, um, but uh, it, it I had to. It, I, I couldn't legally deploy anymore with my medical condition. So. Um, Went to Harvard Kennedy School to do my master's in public policy. I wanted to stay in policy, and then I ended up in politics. And that that that, that was a that was something that just happened overnight. That was, that was not planned. Um, happened as an open seat came up in in my district and in my hometown district, and and my wife decided to go for it. So here we are. Were you drafted, or did you look at it and think that maybe you could bring some of what you learned serving uh, to Congress, where uh, often we can see that sort of knowledge is sorely needed. You know, the, here, here's the story in a nutshell. I'm networking, trying to figure out my next step in life. It's like I said, I didn't want to leave the military. And um, 
meeting with um with a guy who uh, actually worked for Senator Cotton. He's a good friend of mine now. And he says, "Well, why don't you run for Congress? What do you what do you what do you want to do? You know, <laughs> why are you looking for jobs?" I said, "Oh yeah, just like that, just run for Congress. <laughs> how, how exactly does that work? You know?" And I said, "Like it's not like we haven't thought about it, but we think about it." very much in the back of our minds, ours, we being me and my wife. Um, and he goes, well, what district are you from? And I said, second district, Texas. And he looks it up on his phone and it turned out Ted Poe had just announced retirement like the night before. So it was just kind of an interesting happenstance. And we, we thought about it for a day or two and then uh, moved into my parents' uh, living room or game room and uh, started a campaign. Was it difficult for you to develop an agenda on topics more than what you had been immersed in? Because obviously, as you now know, it's, I'm not, this is more for the audience than, than for you, obviously. But you, know, you run for Congress, you run for any elected position, and people want to know where you stand on a whole host of things. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I forget because I'm the one asking these questions. But God, if somebody stopped me on the street and asked me where I stood on 10 issues, I wouldn't know if I would know because maybe I don't think about it, right? I'm just thinking about yeah. what I do for a living and my kids and whatever. But here it is. You're supposed to have opinions on healthcare policy and fiscal policy and, you know, uh, parochial issues impacting your district. How much did you have to sit down and think to yourself, OK, like, who am I and what do I believe on all of these things that are nothing that I've been focusing on? Well, I had been focusing on it. I, I just finished my master's degree in, in public policy. So I, I was pretty up to speed. Um, on, on taxes, especially on economics and uh, things that people care about, border security, it wasn't that hard. Um, it, it took some, took some research, took some meeting with the right people. Um, there's very parochial issues like in Houston with flooding. Um, that's just a matter of meeting with the right stakeholders and figuring it out. Uh, so that this, there's certainly an element of that, uh, but I felt much better prepared than most people I ran against, which has um, perhaps led to me winning. Because look, what, what conservatives in a public in a Republican primary are looking for generally, despite all of the nonsense you see online, what they're really looking for is, can you defend their ideas the best, right? Anybody who's trying to run to the right of anybody else, they're so full of crap, like they're not going to vote any differently, you know. I mean, and I, I we had a good time in my primary because, frankly, everybody was somewhat well qualified and, and pretty honest. Nobody was trying to, 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 to come up with this disingenuous notion that they were going to be more conservative than the guy next to him. Because everybody knows that's BS. The question is, is, are you a better warrior for conservatism than the guy next to you? And by warrior, I mean, are you better at persuading people who disagree with us? You know, a warrior in, in politics is not somebody who just screams and yells. Unfortunately, that's uh, often elevated as quote unquote fighting um, in, in current political parlance. But it's indeed not what it is to fight. Uh, on that, by the way, um, it seems to me that fighting is often what Republican voters are looking for in particular. I could make the same argument um, in talking about Democratic voters in a slightly different way. Um, but I'm curious if you agree or disagree with this. I think what so much what, what Republican primary voters in particular seem to want so much of it's just this idea that their politicians are going to fight, which is why if they, you know, if they scream at people they've never heard of or scream at, you know, dopey journalists like me or, or just 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 fight. Sometimes it's not even important what it is they're saying or who they're fighting or what they're fighting for. So long as voters see that sort of fight in their politician, uh, does, does that jive with what you've experienced? 
Yeah, a little. Um, I, again, I redefine fighting. You know, again, f fighting means, if you're going to fight, you, your goal should be to win, right? And um, I think we forget that. And uh, it, it, voters sometimes forget, like, they, they might tend to support a Republican politician that never wins anything, never even introduces a bill. <laughs> never, this isn't even on committees. But, the, but they're fighters because they'll yell at people. So is that fighting? What have they won for you? Um, and, and I think that's what I'm constantly reminding people of is redefine what it means to fight. Um, and uh, look, look at quote unquote fighters that actually win something for you that maybe persuade others to see things the way you do, that maybe persuade others to be part of your Republican primary voter base because they want before. If you're not doing that, then you're doing nothing for the conservative movement. Nothing. Um, so, yeah, people are looking for that outspoken, um, hard hitting kind of commentary. And so what I try to do is deliver that, of course, but not in a way that alienates everybody else. And what I notice is a lot of my uh, colleagues, especially the new ones, uh, can't, they, frankly, just aren't sophisticated enough to do both. Right. To 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 accomplish both goals, to to show yourself as a fighter for the cause, but also not completely alienate people who might have supported us otherwise. And that's a real problem. You're you're known for speaking your mind. Um, I don't have to tell you that. Does political combat come appear to come easy to you because you faced real combat? Like, does that have something to do with the fact that you don't mind mixing it up with people, that you don't mind getting into disagreements with people, uh, whether it's former President Donald Trump, whether it's uh, other Republicans in Congress, never mind Democrats, just because you've actually been under real fire versus just, you know, rhetorical fire? I suppose, like, I, I suppose the military and, and real combat experience, it gives you a couple of things. Perspective. You know, not, nothing is as, nothing is in need of, of an emotional outburst the way you might think it is. You know, and in politics, God, you see that just constantly. Everybody feels like it's the end of the world constantly. And, and, you know, just stop. It's not. It's just not. Okay. Doesn't mean there's not problems, but if you don't approach those problems with some level of sanity, and and calmness well you will fail to solve those problems uh so that's something that combat certainly teaches you um emotions get you nowhere uh, and, and i would also say the ability to compartmentalize just one last thing it's, it's, it's perspective and the ability to compartmentalize because yeah you see a lot of toxicity in the military i saw the best of americans all the time and uh, politics it's not quite the same <laughs> so you need to compartmentalize some of this stuff where do you think this comes from? And I, I don't know if you were talking about voters or just other politicians, but I've noticed over the past 10 years in particular, there's, uh, and again, and I will say, we're, 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 we tend on in Trump shadow here, uh, which is the name of the podcast, of course, to talk about Republicans, but I do see this on the left as well, but there's tends to be a lot of fatalism in politics. I get this from voters as well as their representatives. This is the last election or the country's, you know, irrevocably lost. Or if we don't pass this bill, then it's like, that's it. There's no more chances to ever do anything good ever again, as opposed to, look, we don't want to lose. And this bill is important, but we're still going to be here tomorrow. We can try again, or we may lose this election, but there's another election every two years in the United States. And in this century alone, we've seen it go back and forth, back and forth with control of Congress and the White House. Where do you think this fatalism comes from? Yeah, that's a good question, um, because I, I, I certainly see it, too. I don't think it's as widespread as you make it sound. I think I think because um, I like I deal with 
I deal with activists and I deal with, and I deal with people just getting their kids to school. Mm. Your, your regular Americans are not as fatalist. Um, they're, they're, they're focused on the here and now, like they know there's problems, but look, they're, I mean, America's still a pretty good place to be. And, um, they're still going out with their friends and enjoying their lives for the most part. It's a little more expensive than it used to be. And they're pissed off about that, but, but they don't think the world is ending. So, um, so that maybe, maybe that's a, a, like a slimmer of, of optimism, but, 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 but there's still a lot of people to your point who are just so angry, so angry and, and so fatalist and gosh, it, it maybe comes from a few things, it, the divisions in our country between the left and the right it's it's just pure hatred all the time and then people get confused about what their principles even are i see it on our side constantly i mean it's like it's like you're you're it's like you need to be contrarian so you're just going to do whatever it takes to be contrarian even if clearly you agreed with this when trump did it so you know like i just want us to be principled conservatives and the left is even worse on these issues frankly um and, and much more toxic uh in, in my opinion but you know, it's where I, I like to talk about my own side as well, like you do, because this is the side that needs to win. And if we're going to win, we need to be worthy of winning. We need to be better. Um, so, you know, and, and I would say the other thing on a practical level is social media. I, I, I'm struggling to find uh, a positive <laughs> for these days from, from that social media has, has given to humanity. Um, it is it is. It is allowed and, and given platform to some, some very toxic trends and narratives, and it allows people to find each other um, in ways that didn't happen before. And I think that it's and it exacerbates divisions and sends people down rabbit holes in ways that just never happened before. Um, and I think uh, I think like any new method of communication, whether it's the telephone or the telegram or writing. Or TV or radio, um, humanity kind of needs some time to adapt to it and to mature a little bit. And, and we're not there. I mean, it's it's. Um, I, I think it's hurting people. <laughs> I think it's hurting people's sanity. You hear more. <laughs> the good news is I hear more and more from people. I am done with social media. I'm off of it. And they become much happier. <laughs> um, what was your opinion of of Congress once you got there? Um, I always think it's got to be a an interesting experience to, you know, it's an American tradition to have a, a low opinion of Congress as a general rule, even if you like your congressman, but <laughs> totally, <laughs> you know, and then and you, of course, <laughs> uh, congressman, as you know, usually when you run for Congress, you emphasize the fact that you have a very low opinion of Congress, but that's why I'm running. So maybe it'll be a little less low, exactly. but, but so you get there. Uh, what did you think? What was your first impression? So, so I was not one of those uh, candidates. I didn't, I, I try not to pander to those to that nonsense, um, and I'm I'm proud of that. I'm, I'm not going to go up there and, and give you the slogans. Of, I'm going to clean up the swamp. Well, guess what? As soon as you're up there, you smell like the swamp, and then you're not, you know. I mean, it's like it, this is this is so predictable. This this cycle um, that politicians do, and I, and I everybody needs to stop falling for it. For God's sake, stop falling for it. Anybody who says things like "I'm going to go get rid of those rhinos and clean up the swamp," just don't elect them. They're obviously being disingenuous with you. They obviously are struggling to find something substantive to talk about. And so they just repeat these slogans that they think you want to hear. Don't elect them. Um, okay. So think that's that. But what did I think of it? Um, like I did not show up naive. I didn't show up idealistic. I, it is exactly what I thought it was. It's, it's a, 
group of 435 people, they're going to have a really hard time agreeing on really, really important policy that affects everyone at the national level, which is exactly how it was designed. Um, if there was a more perfect way to do it, we would do it that way. But it's not clear that there's a more perfect way to do it. Do you think it's it's dysfunctional? Everybody thinks it's dysfunctional these days, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's it's sort of working the way it was supposed to. Sometimes things go faster. Sometimes they go slower. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not perfect. Everybody's got ideas on how it could work better. Um, conservatives would probably largely agree that there needs to be guardrails around the budget, um, balanced budget amendment that is reasonable enough to allow us to, to fund what we need to fund, but, but, but keep the long-term debt under control. Of course, none of that's going to happen until you have the balls to uh, tackle entitlements. And generally Republicans don't because that's out of fashion, right? I mean, look, Republicans in the, let's say the Bush Paul Ryan era, Mm -hmm. whatever you said about them, they, they were, they over time were willing to identify Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security as drivers of the debt because they're on a formula and you have to keep spending more on them. And of course, there are fewer workers demographically paying into Social Security over the years, but it, it really is no longer a priority among Republicans to deal with these big spending drivers. Well, it certainly wasn't Trump's priority. Um, and you know, I, I've always wondered or tried to understand what the um, if it's still the Freedom Caucus's uh, uh, priority. I think it is. I mean, it's, everybody still talks about it. I'll say that. Um, but is everybody going to get together and not throw each other under the bus and say, look, I don't care if it pisses everybody off. We have to reform Medicare and Social Security. Um, and we have to be very careful about it and very thoughtful about it. You go too far, it's not only going to piss people off, it's going to rightfully piss people off because you, you can't rip people's benefits away when they're expecting it right around the corner either. So, it, in, and I, I don't see a lot of signs of that. And um, it's, I think the unfortunate reality is, is on those particular problem sets, uh, these things, these programs will probably go insolvent before the government um, decides to take action, um, especially in divided government. I mean, it's, um, let's just be realistic about it. But um, back to your, but it, it is something I talk about quite often, but you, but you do have to be careful about it because conservative voters immediately become uh, not conservative at all when you start talking about these, uh, these problems. Um, I mean, heck, the, you, you saw, and, and I still see it today, um, conservatives, so-called conservatives, especially like your kind of younger online influencers, constantly bring up the $600, $2,000 checks, not in, a, but not in a negative way. They bring it up in the sense that they felt they got it too late. They felt that it was too slow to get to them. And I think to myself, how is this the right? You didn't lose your job. Why did you need a check? You know, and, and it's, I don't know how that movement, and I think it's, it's, I think it's more of the fringier populist movement on the right. I don't think it's, I don't think it's most conservatives. Where did that come from? It's very liberal in nature. It's not conservative at all. Um, and so we, we just have to be cognizant of that. Uh, and, 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 and speak truth uh, as far as conservative principles go. As far as dysfunctionality, your original question, again, it, to, a large, to a large extent, it does operate um, just as messy and slow and unproductive as I think the founders intended it to, because they want power to be um, by default at the state level and local level. Um, I wanted to switch gears a little and talk about 
Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine and Vladimir Putin, who uh, in my stories are my editors change it sometimes, which I understand. But I, I refuse to refer to him as president because it the term president would suggest uh, a Democratic vote to elect you president. So I, my own little silent protest is referred to him as the Russian strongman. Uh, dictator, I figure, would stand out a lot, but I, I keep trying to get it by editors by just saying Russian strongman. Uh, you know, I, I was—I have to say, given w- this sort of debate, let's say the Republican Party has had about foreign policy and national security over the past four or five years, six years, um, I was somewhat surprised when I was at CPAC a few weeks ago in Orlando that almost to a person, every prominent Republican that took the stage, including very strong supporters of, of Donald Trump, and that's ten, that tends to be what you get at, at CPAC in any event, uh, said Putin's a bad guy and this war is wrong and we should take sides and help. People can debate what the help should be. What I, what it, what I found interesting was that this struck me as the, the Reagan-esque Republican Party that I grew up with, rather than the more populist-infused party of the past few years, um, has that been your reaction and watching your fellow Republicans react to this? Is it been a majority um, taking this position or is it more unsettled among Republicans than it, than it seems to me? Good question. It's good to hear that about CPAC. Um, never know what to expect these days. So it, it, it is um, obviously with the exception of a couple, you know, prominent members and like you know, prominent, my colleagues, but um, who I think are very misguided in their opinions on this um, to an exceptional degree. And of course, there's like the, there's, there's certainly kind of a fringe element online, largely younger, largely live online, um, not representative of the broader voter base. And we can see that in polling as well. When when voters are asked, uh, Republican or Democrat voters, and you look at the polling, it's still strong majorities think that it should help them. Um, it's concerning to see some of the narratives spreading about Ukraine, some of this moral equivalence of Russia. Well, they're both bad. Right? I mean, the, Ukraine has corruption. Well, so they deserve to be invaded and have thousands of civilians killed and millions turned into refugees. What kind of, the hell kind of argument is that? And, you know, the, the question I ask people is, okay, you know, I, I think they're missing. I think that 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 fringe is deeply misinterpreting what America first means. So I, I recall Donald Trump and his foreign policy, and uh, he told Putin that he bombed the shit out of Moscow if he invaded Ukraine. And Putin didn't know if he was serious or not, but that's called deterrence. Um, and it, that's the only thing that matters when you're dealing with authoritarians. And he did it with Iran, too. Um, what, what's, what I struggle with is the same people who applauded Trump for killing Soleimani and rightfully applauded him because that was awesome. But they rightfully applauded him for that and said, this is what it is to, to lead. And, you know, they didn't talk about World War III. They didn't talk about being a warmonger. But if you even advocate for military aid to Ukraine without any U.S. involvement, just military aid, just giving them weapons, oh, then you're a warmonger. And that's, a, that's kind of a silly conversation um, because that's not what people are saying. Uh, nobody's, I, don't, I don't know if anybody's actually advocating for direct war with Russia. And yet that seems to be the, the, the claim from some of this group. But again, it, it's really not the majority or even close to it. 
Where do you think this comes from on the right? And again, I'm a child of the Cold War. So I remember when um, it was an American tradition, but particularly a Republican tradition to hate the Soviets and find common cause with anybody being bullied by them or that would stand up to them. And yet what we've seen, uh, not always in large numbers, uh, but sometimes from significant voices on the right for the past four, five, six years, is this idea that uh, the authoritarian in Russia and the regime in Russia um, is to be um, embraced and, and emulated and admired and that if they invade a neighbor, maybe it's the neighbor's fault. Again, I'm, I don't believe it's by any stretch of majority or necessarily widespread, but it does come from some, some loud or notable voices. I'm just curious if you have an idea of where this may come from uh, when we're talking about people on the right. I mean, we, we could analyze this for hours. I don't really know. I mean, America certainly has an isolationist streak. It's always had an isolationist tradition. You remember our allies were being destroyed one by one in World War II, and we just watched them. And we refused to help Britain for years while they were bombed by the Nazis. Um, and that had, that had widespread approval. I mean, that was 80, 90% didn't want to get involved. It took a serious, serious, it took an attack. Um, it, it took American deaths to change anybody's mind. So, so it's, it's not as if this is new. Now that did change, of course, during the, in the Cold War. I think, um, I think some people just have trouble, very absolutist. And, and so they see a, a foreign policy failure and then they therefore conclude that all foreign policy is a failure. And this very fatalist, very absolutist attitude, complete inability to distinguish between different efforts and understand the nuances and differences in different foreign policy efforts. You know, defending a major European civilized country um, versus invading Iraq. These are not the same thing. These are just not the same thing. If you want to call invading Iraq foolish world policing, okay. That's a good, you can make a good argument for that. I fully admit it. Um, I, you know, I think the only defense of that was you have to understand the, the actual circumstances and set of facts that Bush administration was dealing with at the time. But in hindsight, it's very hard to defend that. But can you really not distinguish between that and what's going on now? You know, you can't lump all of these things together. Um, but, but that tends to be the, tends to be the, the, intu the inclination. I, it also seems like it's just a kind of a reactive necessity to be contrarian sometimes. Uh, it might be that simple. We see some of these voices. It depends on who, like, it depends on who the voice is. Um, some just are, are vehemently anti-war. Any kind of war is, is better. Deeply afraid of it. Um, and, and I, and I, I want to ask them, like, what, 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 at what point would you stand up? At what point is it justified? Because they're very slippery in their arguments. They don't ever say what they're for. They, they often create these straw mans, right? The warmongers are trying to take us to World War III. Who? Who? Who is saying that? You know, so it's a it's just a strange uh, phenomenon, and I, I, I struggle with it every day because I'm watching it. 
Um, but it is, it's, it's loud online. It's, it's not prevalent in the, in the general public. I, you, you ask the general public and them, people think we could probably do more to, to help Ukraine. They don't want to go to war. They don't want, they don't want World War III. But I think most people are smart enough to know that Putin is bluffing when he says, oh, anything you do is an act of war. Oh, that's BS. You're weak. You're losing, you're losing against a much smaller military right now. So you know what? We should give them MIGs and let them kick your ass. And you're not going to do anything about it. That, that's the right answer. And that's the truthful answer, too. And anybody who says otherwise is misreading the situation and doesn't understand basic schoolyard bully tactics, which Putin engages in. And, it's, and we, need, we need to start understanding them. What do you tell people when you're talking about the consequences of the United States not involving itself to help Ukraine, what would be the consequences of that if we just sat it out? And what more should the Biden administration do that it is not doing? Um, yeah, so what, what, well, first, let's, the first question, I mean, why do, why do we care? And um, I, I'd say there's a bunch of reasons. And, and I put a video out on this a while back. And I said, look, if if thousands of people being murdered senselessly doesn't affect you, you're just you're just that stoic. OK, you don't care about that. You don't care about defending um, basic sovereignty of civilized countries that you're allied with, that you promised if they gave up their nuclear weapons that you promised security agreement with. Nobody ever talks about that, but that's a 1994 agreement that we have um, not really lived up to. So. If you don't care about any of that, if you just if you don't care about stability around the world, well, then maybe you care about how instability does affect you um, and it will affect your prices. It will affect your supply chains. And then the question is, 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 is when is enough enough? If, if this isn't enough, then what's the next step? Because if you think authoritarians just stop at the next at the next train station, you're crazy. You need to learn history. It, it never turns out that way. They're not satiable like in, in that sense. Um, and this, this has a lot of similarities to, to World War II. Um, and it, it does feel like we're reliving that, that history quite a bit. I think everybody's still a little shocked that there's this state-on-state warfare. It's just, it's just so out of the norm. Um, and it's not like it's failed states fighting each other and it's more complicated than that. This is very directly a president versus a president, uh, completely uninstigated. And, and I just wonder if some of the, the people who who offer sympathy for Putin and say Ukraine deserved it. I wonder if they're just trying to process that um, and, and trying to, you know, they, they have a philosophical leaning, leaning towards isolationism, which is fine. I mean, you can make an argument for that, I guess. I disagree with it. Um, and so they're struggling to, they're struggling to justify this particular action um, within that philosophy, I guess. But um, look, if more specifically, People are obviously seeing the spike in energy prices. Obviously, there already was one, but it's completely exacerbated now. Grain, food um, is going up wildly because Ukraine uh, exports a lot of that. 70% of the world's neon comes from Ukraine, which is an essential part of uh, chip making, which you use in everything. Uh, so if you think this, the, the instability affects you, um, it affects you economically. And... And, 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 and bring it bring it back down to a, a local level, maybe to, to help people understand why it might matter. Um, you can have your house perfect. Everything in your house is perfect. 
and maybe everything on your block is is doing okay. You've got you know got some disparities, but it's it's doing okay. But the neighborhood over is a freaking war zone. You know, it, it's it it is a matter of time before that instability reaches you in more ways than one. And that's not readily apparent to a lot of people. I get that. But it is true and it is historically true. And we do have an interest in, in, in leading a world that is defined by our values and not Russia and China's. So again, I, I say, I, I hit on this before. I don't think I finished my thought. I think this, people did not listen to Donald Trump very well when he said America first. America, I, don't, I think he understood that America first was not letting Russia and China dominate the world stage that's america last he understood that but but i think a lot of the people who proclaim to be trump supporters don't seem to understand that right now again not a lot it's a it's a it's a small number but america first means america actually first um it, it doesn't mean we do nothing while our allies get the crap beaten out of them what more does the biden administration need to do that it has not done to help ukraine resist Russia and send a message to China that they shouldn't follow a similar path vis-a-vis Taiwan. Well, I, I think the Polish MIG decision was a real blunder um, for reasons I stated earlier. It, it's the, the, this notion that, well, Putin said it's escalatory, so we got to listen. That's nonsense. He's not my national security advisor. I mean, what the hell was that? Um, and he's not going to do anything about it. What's the difference between giving them MIGs and giving them javelins and switchblades and stinger missiles. Uh, what's the difference? Really, substantively, what's the difference? So um, the constant flow um, of supplies and weapons it continues to be important. Um, I think we're all in agreement that a no-fly zone is a step too far. Um, it's understandable that Zelensky is begging us for that because it's in his direct interest. But um, that, does, that does mean war. And that doesn't mean more. Do we win that? Yes. I mean, look, the pros and cons are pros are our, our air superiority is it's vastly better than Russia's. This is, this is not China. This is Russia. Um, but there will be there will be deaths and there will be potential escalation that maybe we don't want to deal with. Um, and uh, I think we're all on the same page on that. But, uh, you know, this is this is a situation now where it's reversible. Nobody really thought that when this was first kicking off. Everybody thought, oh, crap, this is going to be a few days long and it's going to be uh, some kind of Russian puppet government installed and you know, we'll sanction them. Um, that's not at all what's happening. It's a complete stalemate. And um, the only reason I think Putin is negotiating a deal at all is because he's losing and we need to make sure he continues losing. Um, and then feels the pain of this in such an exorbitant manner that uh, China does not feel like the cost-benefit ratio is is worth it with Taiwan. It, it also, we should be learning a lot of lessons. We could have made Ukraine much bigger of a porcupine. Same way we could do a lot more with Taiwan um, and working with them on, on the proper weapon systems that they actually need. Not, not stuff that just looks cool, but the stuff that actually works. Um, that would actually serve as deterrence and keep peace. Deterrence is what keeps peace. It is the ability and threat of force that keeps peace. It's hard for some people to understand, it seems. Um, Trump understood it, you know, I think intuitively. Um, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not seeing, I'm not seeing some people on our side understand that recently. We're speaking with Dan Crenshaw, a Texas congressman, Republican. 
Uh, Dan, before I let you go, I wanted to bring the conversation back to you. And uh, uh, sometimes <laughs> people prefer I shy away from these questions, but I, I think it's most interesting. For people that aren't familiar, just go ahead and Google uh, Dan Crenshaw on Saturday Night Live, and, and I think you'll understand why you became one of the more well-known members of the House of Representatives. It's hard to become uh, well-known as a member of the House outside of your district or unless you're a fixture on cable news every five seconds. Uh, but my question is this, what do you want out of your political career and what do you want other than being a member of the House of Representatives from your district in Texas? Uh, well, you know, I always got to answer a question like that, like a true politician and say, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm happy serving my district right now and I'm not sure what the future holds. It's whatever the voters want. Um, I think that's half true. I think you're happy <laughs> serving your constituents right now, but I think that you probably think about what the future holds rather than waiting for the future to tell you what it holds. Yeah. I, I mean, I, th I think the trick in politics is, is not to, I think there's some people in politics that set their sights pretty strongly on, on a particular higher office and, uh, and they rarely achieve it because I don't know, it's, it's, it seems too obvious to people. It seems too obvious that you're just at a stepping stone right now that you're not really here to serve. And, um, voters take note of it so i don't think about it too much and i am also keenly aware that political winds change on a monthly basis um and so you know it, we'll, we'll we'll see what's we'll see what opportunities arise it, it, what, what i do is is set myself up to take advantage of whatever whatever opportunities arise dan crenshaw a republican congressman from texas Thanks so much for joining us on In Trump's Shadow. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Brian Johnson is the producer of this episode of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024. My book, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP, is now available for purchase wherever books are sold. And every day, you can find my work online at www.WashingtonExaminer.com. We'll see you next time. Ricochet. Join the conversation.